thank you for joining us for this episode of So You're an Aspiring Ally, a project of the Delaware Alliance Against Sexual Violence. So You're an Aspiring Ally is a podcast where we talk about sexual violence and its impact from all angles. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So this April, we are launching this podcast where we choose one aspect of sexual violence and speak to experts in the field about it. We recognize the topic of sexual violence can be very triggering. Please listen with care, and if you need support, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, and they will direct you to resources near you. Today, our podcast guest is Angela Seguin. Angela Seguin is the Assistant Director for Victim Advocacy at the University of Delaware's Student Wellness and Health Promotion. In this role, she coordinates UD's Sexual Offense Support, otherwise known as SOS, which operates through the University of Delaware 24-7 Helpline and engages in systems advocacy at UD. She is also a founding core member of University of Delaware Center for Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence. Angela, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So the topic for today's podcast is the definition of consent and how consent definitions impact us throughout a variety of experiences. This may seem like a pretty basic question, but Angela, can you tell me what the official definition of consent is? Ha ha ha, that's a loaded question. (laughs) So that's part of the challenge is that there isn't one agreed upon national definition, right? So what I'm gonna do is talk about, what I can do is talk about some different examples. So Planned Parenthood, for example, which is you know an authority on lots of things related to sex, they have a graphic that offers the acronym FRIES and FRIES stands for, so that it's, it, it has a little image of you know French fries, but it stands for freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. So those are some of the identifiers that make up consent. And then there's another simplified version that talks about consent needing to be clear, coherent, willing, and ongoing. And I can talk more about those, but one of the things that's interesting is that if you look at many campus sexual assault policies, they define consent using some of these similar criteria. So I can talk a little bit about that. I do want to say that uh, my views don't necessarily represent the views of my employer. (laughs) Now that that's out of the way, most campus sexual misconduct policies are published online. So they're easy, you know, for anyone to access. They're in the public domain. And at the University of Delaware, we define consent. We, I just said we. It is defined (laughs) in five paragraphs. Some, I'm not going to read five paragraphs to you, but some of the key things that it says are that consent is defined as an affirmative decision to engage willingly in mutually acceptable sexual activity given by clear words or actions. And then other key points in those five paragraphs are that informed decision is made freely and actively by all parties involved. So each person must agree to it in order for the behavior to be consensual. And the expectation is that folks make their willingness willingness to engage in each act clear. So each act. Consent to one act doesn't indicate consent for the next. It can't be inferred from silence or passivity, lack of resistance, or a lack of an active response, and also not by a previous sexual encounter with the same person. So consent can be withdrawn at any point in an encounter. And it also recognizes that consent, 
you know, a person's ability to consent can be impaired by alcohol or drugs or by medication the person is taking, by if you're passed out, if your fear of your own safety has been taken away by the other person through physical force or coercion, threats, or being confined. It's also acknowledged that a person's voluntary use of alcohol or drugs can impair their ability to consent. And Delaware State University's consent policy is also online. It's also five paragraphs, and you'll find it's very similar. So consent is knowing, voluntary, clear permission by word or action to engage in mutually agreed upon sexual activity. And a lot of those other things that we've talked about that I just shared are also in there. So incapacity due to alcohol or drugs or mental disability, that can, consent can be withdrawn, that consent to one act is not consent to another, that silence is not consent, etc. So you'll find that they're, they're quite similar in many, many ways. But one thing I think I have to mention in trying to define consent is that state statutes don't always align with, you know, the way campuses define consent. So in Delaware, our code doesn't define the term consent at all. It defines the term without consent. So an action is considered a form of sexual assault if it occurs without consent. That's in Title 11 of Delaware Code, if anyone wants to look it up, also publicly available. And that includes things like if the defendant compelled the victim to submit to the sexual act through coercion, force, gesture, threat of death, physical injury, pain, or kidnapping. One little issue I have with it, with this definition, is that it says, and I'm quoting here, it is not required that the victim resist such force or threat to the utmost or resist if resistance would be futile or foolhardy, but the victim need resist only to the extent that it is reasonably necessary to make the victim's refusal to consent known to the defendant. Oh, wow. So I have an issue with this. You have an issue with this too. It's very uncomfortable and it, it sounds kind of antiquated also. Yeah. I mean, when you think about what we know about trauma and, and fight, flight, or freeze, and in particular freeze, which we know 12 to 50%, and that was early research that we believe is probably much higher than that. But if that percentage of victims of sexual assault are freezing in the situation, that means that neurobiologically, they're having a, a physiological response that is impairing their ability sometimes to talk or yell, to, to react, to say no, to move. You know, tonic immobility is a real thing. And so the victim may not be able to communicate those things to the person. And that sounds like what would be a reasonable response to one person may not fit what's in the statute. So it doesn't sound like that's something that really matches the experiences of many people. And that's an important point because the reasonable person, that is the standard by which any one situation would be compared if it's the response that a reasonable person would have. But we have to take into a context what, are, what a normal response to trauma is to determine what that reasonable person, how that person would respond. So a few of the other pieces of the definition of without consent are that the defendant knew the victim was unconscious, asleep, or unaware that a sex act was being performed, that they knew the victim had a cognitive disability or a mental illness that rendered them incapable of praising the nature of the conduct or of consenting, 
The fourth criteria is regarding health professionals in a position of authority or trust trying to engage in sex acts under the guise of providing a medical or mental health service. And the fifth criteria involves the defendant administering drugs or intoxicants to the victim without their knowledge, you know, in order to prevent them from resisting what's happening. So that's without consent under Delaware law. And the last thing I want to mention is that it's important to point out that children under the age of 12 in Delaware cannot consent to a sexual act ever. Like even if they say yes and they're of sound mind and body and not under the influence of drugs, if you're under 12, it's understood that, you know, you cannot consent. And our brains are in a continual development until we're 25 years old. I think a lot of people don't realize that, that we're actually, you know, we're adults at 18, but our brain is still developing until we're 25. And so it's, it's, but it is pretty clearly recognized that children are vulnerable. And so they're not in a position necessarily to fully understand the impact or the implications of sexual activity. So our law recognizes this. And, and I'm really grateful that that is <laughs> against the law. Yeah, it sounds like this law, well, statutes are all very sticky and there's a lot of words and very flowery language and it sounds like it includes quite a bit of good things but it also seems like it's lacking in certain areas like we just haven't gotten there yet yeah i would agree i mean there's a whole piece of the law that i didn't even talk about for folks who are between you know 13 and 18 you can consent with someone who's within four years of your age but it's still recognizing you know, that even if you're 16, there's a predatory concern there that a position of authority or trust who's maybe 32, you know, that that may not be full consent as well. And that may not be a safe situation either. So it gets a little tricky when we look at the teen years. But yeah, uh, I mean, and then there, you know, as we've talked about, there's other concerns about our, our law that I have in terms of that piece about having to convey that you're not consenting in some verbal way. So as far as talking about consent, I know we're here to talk about consent and sex and how it relates to sexual violence, but it seems like consent is a topic or a theme that can impact a lot of different parts of our lives. Does that sound right to you? Oh, sure. I mean, consent is a often a legal term that applies to, you know, lots of other activities that we do. You know, you can't sign a legal and binding document and know what you're consenting to if for example, if you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol or debilitating medications or things like that, you have to be of a certain state of being in sound mind and body. So consent's used in lots of other parts of our lives, but clearly we've adopted the term consent specific to sexual activity to try to clarify, you know, and help people understand that when you're in that situation, how important it is to be sure that the person you're with is agreeing to what's happening. Yeah. So this question that I have, I, I think that you've answered quite a bit of this already as far as what specific implications our ideas of consent in relation to sexual violence. Is there anything else that you feel like you wanted to elaborate with that? How much time do you have, Melissa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot. I worry that we've tried to oversimplify this issue by really making consent about a clear-cut dualistic thing that you, was it a yes or was it a no, right? Because we know there are situations where a person intends to harm another person and have control over their body. And so we know that there's, there's intention there and a person can say, 
you know, if a person says no in any situation, then no is no, and that's that period. But there are times when people say yes, and it's still not consensual, right? So if a person is coerced through pressure or is worn down or threats are made against them or there's emotional manipulation or promises of things, you know, but the goal is to have sex and, and that person does not want to have sex, yet they say yes because of this coercion, that is not freely given consent, right? So coercion is clearly a form of sexual assault, but it's not one that's well understood. I think the public generally thinks, oh, well, if you said yes, then it was consensual. And it's as clear as that. And there's a lot of pushback when we try to point out that sometimes a yes is really because the person feared for their life or because the person really was feeling threatened in the situation, right? And as a society, we do a horrible job of teaching kids about consent and how to navigate conversations, not just about how to say no, but also how to talk about what they want and what, what is pleasure. And, and so not everyone is clear or assertive about these wishes when they're in their first sexual experience or any first sexual encounter with a new partner. And that can lead to some really muddy interactions um, and lack of clarity. So, I mean, I'll, I'll talk more about this, but I'm a big proponent of comprehensive sex ed for this reason. Hmm. There's also a book that came out last year called Sexual Citizens. Have you heard of it? I have not, but I'll have to add it to my reading list. It's by Jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Kahn, and they explored campus sexual assault through their research project at Columbia University. And they have a whole chapter on consent because they explore some of those less clear circumstances and interpretations. You know, when I'm doing education at UD, I always get someone asking about, well, what, what if both people are drunk? Or someone saying, you know, talking about, well, I didn't know, I believed there was consent there, right? In the book, they point out that some students practice affirmative consent, but many more use a range of social cues to understand whether or not they have consent, right? Body language, um, nonverbals, facial expressions, noises. There's lots of things that people use as cues. And that's not a groundbreaking discovery. Like we all could have said that, right? I think most of us have been in a situation where we were agreeing to what was happening, but no words were exchanged. Right. At least I have. I will own that. I have, you know, a lot of times <laughs> that's with a long-term partner where there's trust and we know each other well. But that system of not verbally communicating your consent can be complicated when, or flawed when, you know, the parties don't know each other well, or there's alcohol involved and uh, a person's judgment is impaired because that's the first brain function we lose when we're intoxicated. And honestly, your ability to reason and assess the other person's reactions. So I think the bottom line for me from that book was just a lot about not just we need to learn more, but also we need to rethink how we're educating folks. I feel like as a society in the U.S., we need to normalize talking about sex from the time kids are born and continue to talk about it like it's a normal thing because it is, it's a normal human function as they grow up and, and start with early conversations and continue them, which is again, why I'm all about the comprehensive sex ed. Yeah. I, I know in conversations with people, there's been a lot of resistance to this stating consent or asking for consent 
like people think it's very clinical and it ruins the mood and it's not sexy. And that seems like it's really a symptom of our culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's another thing students say a lot, you know, in our educational programs is, but it ruins the mood. And, but really we don't, we don't communicate like that, that come on, that's not how we do it, you know? And, and there's also all these euphemisms that mean sex and students think, well, if I say want to Netflix and chill, then it's obvious what I mean. Some people actually just want to watch Netflix and chill out. <laughs> but obviously it's, it's, a you know, like for a lot of folks, that means, do you want to go back to my room and have sex? So we do have to get better at how we're communicating these kinds of things. One last thing I wanted to address is this misconception about, I've heard both victims talk about this and people who've done the harm say this, but you know, where they're citing how the victim's body responded in this situation as evidence that there was consent. But a lot of people don't understand what arousal non-concordance is. So that's basically when there is sexual stimuli present, and that can be as simple as looking at a photo of two people kissing or watching a movie where there's an intimate scene, or when we're in a sexual situation ourselves and things are happening. But physiologically, there are two different responses that are happening at the same time. One is how the genitals react to that stimuli, and our bodies are wired to respond to sexual stimuli, right? So the body gets, you know, you might get wet or hard, and that's when that sexual stimuli is relevant to us. That's a physiological response. But we also have how the person is responding, you know, their level of arousal. So they're reacting to what is sexually appealing to them, you know, what turns them on. These are two separate reactions. And I don't think people understand that all the time. So genital response doesn't always match arousal. How our genitals respond doesn't always match our what's appealing to us, how we feel aroused, right? And we can think of situations where the response of the genitals and the response of the person don't match, like when a cis male person experiences morning wood, right? They're, they're not sexually aroused at all. The person isn't aroused, but the body is having a physiological response. Or when you take meds for sexual dysfunction to have that genital response, but it still may not match where you are in terms of arousal. So here's the key part. For men, 50% of the time, there's overlap between how their genitals respond and whether they're, the person is aroused. 50% of the time, they'll get hard at the same time that they feel turned on. For cis women, 10% of the time, there's overlap between how their genitals are responding and whether or not they feel aroused. 10%. For some reason, women's bodies are wired to have a physiological response to just about any sexually relevant stimuli even if they're not personally finding it appealing and feeling aroused. But what this means for sexual assault is that genital response is not arousal, right? Wet is not aroused. Erect is not aroused. Genital response is not consent. Arousal is not consent. Orgasm is not consent. And it may not mean that the person wanted what happened just because their body physiologically had a response to what happened. I just think that's a piece of consent that doesn't get talked about much that I thought it was important to clear up. And there are some great resources on this, like the book Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. 
has a whole, ch whole section on this. You can Google it. There's a lot of good scientific documentation of this. So I encourage people who want to learn more to check it out. Yeah, that book has been on my reading list. I started it recently. It's got a lot of really good reviews out there. And I think this goes back to your point of the fact that we don't talk about sex very much, that this is not a very well-known fact. This should be common knowledge since we are sexual beings. This is how we reproduce and we are human beings that enjoy pleasure. Absolutely. So a lot of what we know also about when someone's consent is violated, we know that there is trauma. When consent is violated, there is some form of trauma. But is it always a crime when it comes to someone's consent being violated? So the presence of trauma is not criteria for a crime to be uh, to have occurred. But I would say it is always a crime if someone is being touched in a sexual way and they don't want it. Whether or not that crime is easy to prosecute, whole different question, right? Any unwanted touching of a sexual nature counts as sexual assault and is unlawful. But there's definitely a difference in terms of public perception and how cases are addressed and adjudicated too. So public perception is a whole different thing as well. We know that no two survivors react in the same way. So something that's traumatizing for one person may not be traumatizing at all to another person. And what that means is that, you know, for one person having their breast grabbed or groped could cause the same kind of trauma that for another person, you know, rape by vaginal penetration causes that level of trauma. I mean, people are just different. So trauma is not the criteria for laws, but these actions aren't treated as if they were equally severe, right? And I mean, you can see this in terms of the law and public perception, but, but yes, any unwanted touching of a sexual nature is a crime. That makes a lot of sense, especially with you saying that our Delaware statute specifically talks about without consent often. We talked a lot about Delaware statute and we talked about campus statute. I don't know if you know much about Delaware statute in comparison to other states or how do you think the state statute compares to campus statutes? What are your opinions on that or what thoughts and information do you have to share about that? Yeah, I'm not in a position to compare to other state statutes. I've looked at some things, like I've looked at the four-year rule with teenagers compared to other states. Some states have that anyone under 14, I think Maryland is one of those states, anyone under 14 can't consent, so they, they it's higher than 12. But I really haven't looked at how to consent or without consent is defined in other statutes. I would say you can already see the difference between campus most campus policies and state policies in that campus is defining affirmative consent and state statutes, at least ours, isn't, you know, is, is defining without consent. So that's a big difference there. And I know there was an effort a couple of years ago, Senator Brian Townsend tried to introduce affirmative consent language into the Delaware statute, but that effort wasn't successful. So there were people who opposed it for a lot of different reasons. I know one of the arguments made was about the scenario I shared of, you know, two people might be in a sexual situation and not verbally communicate at all, but still both be consenting. And what if, you know, like, so how do you prove that in court? That kind of thing. 
but there's a lot to be said for the efficacy of affirmative consent policies. There have been states that have had it, like California had a policy that you had to, or, or currently has an affirmative consent policy, and other states have fallen in line adopting that. But there are also examples, Antioch College several years ago had an affirmative consent policy that really required that students must state their verbal agreement to every single sexual act as they went through it. And there was so much pushback to that, that not only did it impact their conduct process, but Antioch College is no longer a college. It, and the, its downfall has been traced back to that policy, which is pretty powerful. So we're as a, as a public, we're kind of all over the place on this issue. Yes, I see what you're saying. In past episodes, we've talked about stigma and shame. How do you think our societal understanding or sometimes misunderstanding of consent might contribute to stigma and shame relating to sexual violence? So one of the challenges with that is that we've all been raised and grown up in a rape culture. Survivors' first reactions to their own experience of victimization is often self-blame and shame. And that has a lot to do with this rape culture and the the victim-blaming messages that, that we're exposed to all the time. Victim blame is perpetuated when, you know, the knee-jerk response of people around us is judging or questioning about the survivor's choices or actions, what they wore, what they drank, why they danced with the person, why they agreed to be alone with the person, etc., etc. There often seems to be a belief that the victim must have been unclear in their communication, right, or that they wanted it and just regretted it later. All of these messages that we get consistently from the media, from TV and movies, advertising, the way that news outlets cover stories when there's a sexual assault in the news, the absolutely wrong things that national politicians say sometimes, (laughs) the myths perpetuated about sex by pornography. I mean, that's a whole, we could have a whole, you could have a whole podcast episode about that, but all of this conveys these myths and, and notions that create so much stigma and shame for survivors. And then, you know, when we think about alcohol as a society, we're clear that if a person is past a 0.08 blood alcohol content when they're driving, that's illegal, right? You can't legally drive at a 0.08 or above. And as I said earlier, that's because the first brain function we lose is judgment. We're also, as I said before, not allowed to sign a legally binding document or contract while under the influence of mind-altering medications or alcohol or drugs because we universally understand that if we're in that state, we're not of sound mind and body and we can't make a clear, knowing, conscious, informed decision about what we're agreeing to. So it should also be obvious that consent under these same circumstances is not a clear, knowing, willing, informed <laughs> decision. And yet we we cannot seem to get that through our heads, you know, and, and I don't mean we, you and me, I mean, we society. And the thing is, so so that leads to shame for survivors who find themselves in this situation, who've been exposed to all these messages, you know, that's where they default is I must be to blame because I was drunk or because I did X, Y, or Z. And the problem is shame is the antithesis to healing. So Rebecca Campbell and colleagues in the early 2000s did some studies about this, first responding studies. 
that found that if a survivor is not believed or is blamed or is judged by the first person they go to for help, they're much less likely to tell their story again, to report to police, to seek medical help, to go see a counselor, to use advocacy services. And that could be weeks, months, in many, many cases, years later that they might ever tell again or not ever tell at all. So we really do have to get past these stigmas that cause shame for survivors. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And also want to point out, I think this is a good point in this episode, rather that while there's a variety of definitions and a variety of statutes and everything varies across state, something that we do know is that there is some form of help everywhere. So there is help whether you're on campus or you live in a suburban neighborhood or you don't want to be involved with the police. There is some form of help wherever you go. And I I think that it's just important for people to hear that through having these difficult conversations sometimes. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Do you have any special message that you would like to share with survivors of sexual violence? Well, it's funny because my special message ties in with what you just said. I want survivors to know that we believe you, you know, that if you call sexual offense support at the University of Delaware or if you call the Sexual Assault Resource Center in Newcastle County, or contact Lifeline in Kent or Sussex counties, or if you talk to a victim services personnel at any you know, police agency in Delaware, we are going to believe you. The victim advocate or victim services person is gonna believe you, and you deserve to receive support, compassion, answers to your questions, and trauma-informed care. So I really hope you take that step to reach out and ask for help. It really is a sign of strength and resilience to do that. Absolutely. What about any special message you might want to share with people who may be unfamiliar with sexual violence, though I think that it's hard to be unfamiliar with any form of sexual violence with the Me Too movement, Time Is Up, documentaries like The Hunting Ground, but maybe for those who are less familiar with some of the concepts we talked about today. Sure. You know, there are times when I go to parties, that is (laughs) pre-pandemic, where (laughs) I really want to avoid answering the question, so what's your profession or what do you do for a living? Uh, Yeah, I see you nodding. You you, you (laughs) have had this experience, right? The myths about sexual violence and the impulse to blame victims are so widespread. And when I'm in a, I'm having some downtime and I'm in a, you know, personal relax mode, I don't always feel up to getting into a discussion where I have to educate others about this or a debate about it, right? I just want to relax. But having this happen so often caused me to want to, you know, to avoid the question. That tells you something about the prevalence of these beliefs. So I would encourage folks who are unfamiliar with sexual violence to learn more about it. There are tons of great books out there. One that I like a lot is called Asking for It by Kate Harding, which focuses on rape culture. Or follow the Me Too movement. You just mentioned the Me Too movement or the Time's Up movement and genuinely listen to what survivors are saying. Survivors are the experts of their own experience. It isn't their job to educate you, so please don't expect that. But if they try, listen and believe them. Yes, I agree with that. And just a little shameless plug for those listening to this episode. If you haven't, our first episode, we interviewed a survivor who shared their story and gave some really good insight about a lot of different topics about their experience and also their healing. So if you haven't listened already, it's there. (laughs) (laughs) 
why was it important to you to do this interview with us today? Well, for one thing, it was important to support the Alliance, the Delaware Alliance Against Sexual Violence. And I also love that this series is focused on encouraging and supporting people who want to be allies. The world needs more allies in in a variety of areas, but definitely in this one. Yes. Thank you for that. We appreciate having you here. If you've had a future goal for the advocacy community, what would it be? I'm sure that you probably have several, but if you had to pick one or two. So one of my goals would be that as advocates, we do a better job of helping our colleagues and allied professionals understand the value of having a victim advocate involved in a case. Because when advocates can support a survivor as they engage in all the many steps of the criminal justice process, it can be the difference between them being willing to move forward or withdrawing from the process. I also have a goal that we as advocates advocate for the kinds of societal changes that could help to prevent sexual violence, like comprehensive sex ed for kids. Starting with teaching communication skills and respect in relationships early on and what that looks like, and then continuing with age-appropriate information about throughout you know, the child's development. And finally, I think we need to do a better job of developing the field of advocacy and supporting advocates at all stages throughout their careers, because Vicarious trauma is a real thing that lots of first responders and helping professionals, not just victim advocates, are at risk of experiencing. And and I would like to see us be more trauma-informed within our organizations and support advocates throughout their career so that they want to stay in their career, so that they're mentally healthy and well to continue to serve the survivors in our community. That is a good point. And I think that a lot of people in the advocacy community, we're all helpers, right? So we want to help everyone that we can. And you have to remember to help yourself too. Absolutely. I have one more question for you. After supporting us with this podcast today, have you also joined as an ally with the Delaware Alliance Against Sexual Violence? I have both joined and made a donation. We appreciate that a lot. So thank you. And for those listening, if you're interested in joining as a member or an ally to the Delaware Alliance Against Sexual Violence, you can find several options on our website at www.delawarealliance.org. And before we go, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to end on or any questions for me? Just great job with the with the podcast. I've enjoyed the first two episodes. I may not listen to this one. <laughs> You know, it's weird to hear yourself, but great job with it. And I'm glad you're doing it. And I look forward to the remaining episodes. Thanks so much. So to everyone listening, thank you for listening to this episode of So You're an Aspiring Ally, a project of the Delaware Alliance Against Sexual Violence. If anything you've heard today has upset you, support is available. Angela mentioned several options that are local in Delaware. But if you're listening from somewhere else, you can reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, and they will direct you to resources near you. Again, to become a member of the DAASV, check out our website at www.delawarealliance.org and follow us on social media. Thanks so much for listening and take care. This podcast has been presented by the Delaware Alliance Against Sexual Violence, Delaware Sexual Assault Coalition. Thank you.